Dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ashley, and I am thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman Issue 6, 24 Hours. I am joined by Two Sins Against God, All Meringue and Razor Blades, Sean. <laughs> hey, what's up? <laughs> and surprise guest pat say what now our producer surprise i'm usually the producer i'm on the podcast today i graduated ben i'm not coming after your job i promise <laughs> there's a there's like an early 2000s like rap song and it was like one of kanye's first verses and then like dame dash was on the track and he was just like talking over it and he was just, I remember him being like, we got the, we got the producer on the record. He raps better than most rappers. And it feels appropriate wow. to say here. Well, here we are. I probably, ra- I definitely rap better than my brother, but we'll see if I Sandman unlocked. Uh, sorry, we'll see if I Sandman unlocked better than my brother. Let's see if he can get Sandy. <laughs> let's, see if, let's get Sandy. Let's see how Sandy can get Pat. All right. On each episode, we'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First will be the rundown, where we'll let you know who created the issue, and then we'll go to the catch-up to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown. This gives you a synopsis of the week's issue, and we follow that up with the deep dive when we really get into everything that happened. Then in our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel, sometimes occasionally more than one, and our favorite non-Morpheus character. So there you have it. Six sections to get through, so let's get going. Pat, over to you for the rundown. All right. Well, before we get to the rundown, I think our waiter's coming over. Just let me put in my order real quick. Okay, so this week, issue six, we have the usual Neil Gaiman as the writer. For Penciler, we have Mike Drigenberg. The cover was done by Dave McKean. The inker is Malcolm Jones III. The colorist is Robbie Bush. The letterer is Todd Klein. And the editor is Karen Berger. Sean, why don't you catch us up on what's been going on so far? Okay, so he was so close, wasn't he, folks? After spending seven years locked up in Roderick Burgess's basement and barely escaping, only to find his tools have been stolen, stolen and his realm has decayed. Morpheus, the Lord of Dreams, was almost back on top. He found his pouch of sand with the help of John Constantine, bluffed the hordes of hell, and bested the devil himself to reclaim his helm, and then finally tracked down his ruby, his dreamstone, the embodiment of his power, with a little help from some weirdo superheroes. And just when he goes to grab the thing, it freaks out and knocks him unconscious. See, the thing is... The ruby had been altered and manipulated by the psychotic John D, who spent years locked up after using the ruby to commit a bunch of silly Silver Age crimes. But John has taken a darker turn during his time locked away. He escapes and goes to track down the ruby, brutally murdering a woman who had given him a ride and shown him nothing but kindness. He arrives at the warehouse location of the ruby mere moments after the Sandman, stepping over his unconscious body to reclaim what he believes is rightfully his. 
When we last see Dr. D, he enters a nondescript small-town diner to finally put his nefarious plans into action. And over to you for the breakdown, Ashley. Thank you, Sean. We are introduced to the all-night diner, where we meet Bette and her customers, or shall I say, raw material, Judy, a young man with an interview at the Chemical Works, Gary and Kate Fletcher, Marsh, and a quiet little stranger in a corner seat, our beloved Dr. D. At first, he appears to merely be observing them, as Bette does for her stories, until one of them attempts to leave. This is when we see, this is when we begin to see D's true motive, to let his precious ruby keep the flies in the trap, driving them slowly to madness for his own entertainment. He experiences their desires and dramas, provokes violent conflicts, and makes himself a god among them. By hour 11, it becomes abundantly clear how widespread the effects of the ruby are. Both instantaneous comatose states and insomnia plague the world, provoking global insanity. Then D receives a visit from the three, the kindly ones, and demands them to tell him his future. Despite all past etiquette, they offer three, each more true than he realizes. After he is de- excuse me, <clears throat> three, two, one. After he has dined on their depravity, both coerced and supplied willingly, he tells them a fairy tale and permits them to finish killing one another, and then sits, for the first time in 24 hours, alone, and waiting for the dream ward. When Dream appears, Dr. D greets him with pride as Dream surveys the wreckage. NC. All right, let's get into the deep dive. But hold on, I think the waiter's coming over to take our order. Uh, let's just take a second to... Wait, didn't we already... I'm, conf- I'm confused. Uh, I'll be right back. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. <laughs> now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yes, sounds like someone fell. (laughs) Gotcha! Doing this. this is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run. They're catching up. <laughs> Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. And we're back. We're diving straight into the meat of the episodes where our co-hosts lend their expertise. Sean? Why don't you kick it off for us today? What do you got? All right. Well, let's talk about some of the changes in this issue. I mean, this is a big break from the previous ones that we have encountered. Neil Gaiman identifies this issue as, quote, the first time I tried to break all the rules of what had been done in comics to date to go as far as I could go. 
A lot of readers said they stopped buying Sandman after issue six and didn't come back for ages until they were told it was safe. No way. Yes, yes. No way. I believe it. I mean, I believe it. Yeah, that's it's it's pretty understandable, right? Um, because this issue is mean, it's ugly, and it's pretty brutal. Uh, you know, in our TV watch-alongs episodes, Ashley and I have both talked about how much we miss the sort of, like, rough, grimy edges of these early issues um, compared to the kind of very smooth and silky Netflix adaptation. Well, in this yeah. issue, we got as much as we could handle and then some. So, you know, if you're coming from the TV show or really any of Gaiman's other work, this probably comes as somewhat of a shock. Even if you come from the previous issue where Dream rides a dragon and a bus and meets a Martian. I don't know if you read that issue, Pat, but all those things oh, yeah. happen. <laughs> this yeah, was, definitely. <laughs> this was probably an experience you were not expecting. But that's the effect Gaiman was going for. Yeah, I, I certainly, first time reading the comics, I read this issue a few days ago, and it was shocking. I was, I was, I loved it. I loved every moment. And it just really? keeps getting pushed further. It just keeps getting pushed further. There are some fantastical things in the previous issues, but dang, he really pushes the limits here. And I love that he's outspoken about trying to break all the rules here. Yeah, and like one of the notable differences, like you called out, is that there's no established like DC guest stars in this issue. No new ones anyway. We've seen, you know, Dr. D before. And that's kind of a balance that he was trying to strike. So he says, I was walking a tightrope, really. I wanted the series to look enough like a superhero comic to get people who liked superheroes to read it, and I wanted it to look enough like a horror comic to allow me to write the sort of fantasy stories I was interested in writing. So he's really kind of balancing all these different popular genres at the time and trying to draw in, you know, as many readers as possible. He wants to be able to continue telling this story. Uh, and especially in these first several issues, it's kind of, I think it all works really well together, but it's all over the place in terms of the tone and things like that. You know, he's identified it as um, being essentially five finger exercises, he says, to help me find out what my voice sounds like. That's why I titled the book Collecting These Stories, Preludes and Nocturne, Nocturnes. They're preludes to my figuring out my approach to the series. You know, so, so Gaiman and his crew, they're feeling experimental, bold, and they're trying to keep readers from getting too comfortable while still giving them a way into the series. In an, in an Entertainment Weekly interview from 2017, he says, Whenever people would criticize me because characters who they liked died in Sandman, I would point out to them that pretty much everybody dies in Sandman. It's set <laughs> out there... That if you keep a story going long enough, it will end in death. Um, and that's something that's like written out, you know, in this book. Um, and he says, everybody's going to get it. And that I felt, that being, you know, this issue, was where that was established. I got to push that pin in in 24 hours. You know, this was a big turning point in the series. Now... The story itself was inspired by Peter Greenaway's 1988 film, Drowning by Numbers. Have ever, ever, any of you ever seen that? No. I've never seen that. No, I've never even heard of it, but I'm going to check it out now if this is based on that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't seen it either, because um, it's kind of hard to get a hold of his films, but they are absolutely stunning and horrifying and funny. Like, his movie The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover is one of the most, like, beautifully designed and shot movies I've ever seen, and it's got cannibalism. Nice. <laughs> as one does. Yes. Naturally. Yeah. But he, he was trained as a classical artist, so, like, all of his compositions look like these, look like paintings. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Hmm. Um, but Drowning by Numbers basically counts one through a hundred over the course of a story about three women who drown their husbands. You know, and this is what makes Neil go, you know, hey, I've got 24 pages. I'll do a page, uh, an hour a page. Okay. Because that was sort of the original uh, conceit. 24 pages, gotcha. 24 hours. That's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> but of course, he had to kind of give up on that a little bit when he realized that the first pages had to be devoted to, like, introducing the characters properly. Sure. And so... You know, before I found him actually talking about this, I had like, I, I, I mean, I figured that was what happened. Like, because it almost aligns page for page, like each mm -hmm. hour uh, as a page. But, you know, the first hour takes up like five pages or something like that. Some other ones are compressed to like, you know, half a page each. But I was like, I know there's a draft out there somewhere where he's mm -hmm. trying to write it as one page each hour. Imagine trying to fit that in. And I wonder at what point he was like, okay, it's not possible, Neil. We have to move on. <laughs> yeah, I'm like wondering what he cut to be able to make what we have now. Oh. If he had some terrible thing happening per hour. Do we have, yeah, I wonder do what we have access to those drafts? Like... Is, is there any, uh, is there a Sandman museum out there or online that we could see some of the early drafts? Do you know, Sean? Uh, I don't know. I mean, he's probably published more, like, because he writes full scripts. Um, you know, he's probably published more of his scripts than other writers I can think of. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if the current edition does, but the original collected edition of... Uh, Dream Country, the third volume, had a full script written out in it just for people to so see cool. like how he does it. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Um, yeah, but I don't know if there's like... It, archives for comic creators are really hard to find and track down mm -hmm. because so much of it in the early days was thought of as like disposable, you know? Right. And so yeah. much of it was made as work for hire owned by someone else. So, you know, you might mm -hmm. not even have access to your original drawings after you've turned them in. Right, right. Um, but hopefully wow. someday there's a like a Neil Art uh, game and archive publicly available. But I digress. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this... You know, given this more experimental goal, um, but still sort of, you know, working within the confines of what would be an effective comic book story, he kind of says to himself, you know, hang on, I'll stay in one location, right? And awful things are going to happen in this one location over 24 hours. And he says, it came into focus suddenly and beautifully. I knew what had to happen in each hour. And I just brought a bunch of people onto the stage and destroyed them. And it was an awful thing. It was like, okay, where does my imagination go? What would I do to these people? And then going, this needs to be relentless. It needs to be horrible. And it can never be 
torture porn. You can never enjoy what is happening to these people, which I thought is a, this a noble goal. It's a tough needle to thread, right? Yes. I feel like this issue is this really bold challenge to both the creators of the books themselves uh, and the audience. It's the clearest break so far from anything Neil was doing in the previous issues and really anything in um, mainstream comics at the time. Although, like, Jamie Delano and John Ridgway had some pretty horrifying stuff happening in Hellblazer, and Alan Moore and Stephen Bissett did do, like, a 20-page sex scene between a woman and a plant monster in uh, Swamp Thing. But, you know, aside from those, this is pretty unique. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, you, you get what I'm saying. So I just want to share some last words from Neil on this topic. Um, he says, one of the reasons I wrote that issue was to say, look, this narrative will not always be trustworthy. It will not always be kind. People will not always get out alive. Bad things can happen. What was nice is I never had to go that dark again. The readers always knew that I had and always knew that I was capable of it. And that things could get dark. <laughs> I love it. So he's kind of peeking with his darkness here. He's pushing, he's pushing everybody's limits. And then he kind of takes a step back and he doesn't have to go back there for the rest of the series. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I do find that an interesting comment, though. That I, I never have to go that dark again. Maybe he doesn't do so for this length of an issue. But I would argue there are some moments that are as dark. They're just fleeting mm, yeah. especially for women yeah like calliope right like y yeah parts of that are yeah i would say and eurydice yeah like not not fun not great kind of monstrous but they're yeah, fleeting or, as you said and they're not yeah. entire issues dedicated to getting to know characters just to watch them sure. be tortured right that's really interesting i like it what do you have for today ashley yeah, so focusing still on, on the diner a little bit, my my two deep dives are, as we said just moments ago, far more fleeting and less overarching like Sean's are in this particular episode. But there were two specific things that I kind of just caught while reading this time around. Uh, the first one that I want to focus on are the occurrences of sheep throughout the issue. Yeah. I never noticed that before this reading. Yes, exactly. Same, actually. So when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to focus on, the imagery of sheep came up frequently. And I actually, I looked, I looked like Charlie from um, It's Always Sunny because I was itemizing all of the moments <laughs> in which sheep popped up in a panel. And I have a list of them in front of me. The first one being when Bet is talking about being a writer and it's like right above, it, it might be a door or a fridge or, or some like cabinetry. I'm not sure which. And then um, above the mirror when she's, so it like kind of moves. It doesn't stay in one place, which I found really compelling. I, I was trying to figure out, okay, where's the location of this picture of a sheep? Why would they choose to put this in a diner? But it's never in the same place. It's always moving and always with different characters as you go on. Cause you also see it, with Judy, when she's by the phone, when she's going to call Donna, you see it by the Fletchers when they're, you know, talking to Bet, um, making their order. You see it with the guy who's on his way to an interview and he's ordering more coffee. You see it with Marsh. So it, it, it always occurs at least in the same panel once with, with each character, which I find interesting because you see Dr. D then later refer to the 
um, his victims in the diner as insects the whole time, as flies, as insects. But then you see the sheep imagery, and ultimately uh, you get this general theme of of D referring, not outwardly, explicitly referring to himself as a predator, but he thinks of himself as, as such. Um, you know, he thinks of himself as having more control than he does, really, because he thinks of himself as having captured these people and brought them into his web, into this trap. And simultaneously with the sheep Im- imagery, you think of them as also having been herded into this enclosure mm-hmm. and then being put through their paces as one would, you know, a herding dog would would herd sheep through various obstacles. Um, and you do. He he puts them through their paces, but at the same time, the reader knows the power of the ruby and how much the ruby is probably having that effect on him as well, which I find a really interesting sort of comparison. Like his whole desiccated appearance comes from, yes. you know, being denied access to the dream world. Right, exactly. So uh, right. you also see this comparison with sheep and wolves because later, you know, when the television is going through various... Uh, programming when it goes to the sort of National Geographic type programming Mm -hmm. and they're all acting like wolves then you also have the whole description of how wolves are pack animals and how they they function together in their own society. Yeah, that uh, um, that that little bit of that little sound clip uh, coming from the TV mm -hmm. was from the Wolfman, the 1941 Wolfman. That's right, that's why it sounded familiar to me. Okay, thank you. And that's again, thank you. Sheep and wolves, you know. Yeah, well, and and it's, I mean, with this sort of out of body narrator we have throughout the entire issue as well, it's just interesting how their behavior is described very animalistic. Mm-hmm. And again, Doctor D thinks of himself as kind of, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing, but really he's a sheep in wolf's clothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, he's putting on airs. He's putting on. He, he again, he assumes more power than he actually has. I mean, even in the effects of the way he tries to use the ruby, he doesn't have an original thought in his head because the global effects are very similar to the global effects that Dream's Mm -hmm. powers had in the very beginning of the series. You know, total global encephalitis lethargica, also insomnia, paranoia, um, and and all the insanity. Which if you didn't, if you haven't heard our first couple episodes, have historical precedent. They do. Very interesting. Go back and listen if you haven't heard. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and I also kind of find the comparison between Dr. D and Bet interesting as well, because in the beginning of this issue, we have Bet referring to her client, you know, these, these patrons of this diner as being her raw material. So she's using them Mm -hmm. and she's kind of preying on their lives, you know, certainly without consent because she's writing about them and just changing the ending of those stories. So, um, I know we already talked about the TV episode, the last podcast episode, but I like that they picked up on that for the TV episode, that we've got Bet who's using the clientele for their stories. She's kind of farming them. And then Dr. D is farming everyone in the Steiner for his own enjoyment, uh, which I find a really interesting sort of hierarchy where everyone assumes more power than they have. Everyone assumes more control than they have, even when they're under the effects of Dr. D using the Ruby, they're thinking of themselves as at times willingly doing this thing or not realizing they're under somebody else's control until he gives them their sanity back for a brief second and then goes back to kind of puppeting them around. That's really interesting because um, another sort of, 
game and quote that I didn't end up including in my little thing there mm-hmm. was where he says that this issue was the first one he realized he was writing uh, a story about stories. And in Ooh, part okay. it comes from, you know, that experience of writing Beth's character. So there's this interesting moment of like self-reflexivity where mm-hmm. he's got D torturing these characters but he's making all of this happen right right yes he's doing all this to the characters and 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 the readers um and sort of you know so he's sort of the the i feel like the 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 role of the writer is really part of the conflict of this issue Mm, well and and it has to be and i I think that's really apparent even as you start this issue, because we suddenly have this narrator we've never met before, and we can't quite place ownership of that voice. I don't know, Sean, if you have thoughts on that specifically at all, but um, as they're describing Bet's actions, I'm like, oh, okay, this is, when you, when I, the first time I read this, I thought, oh, this is Dr. D narrating all of these lives of these people here. And then we get to Dr. D, and the narrator's narrating his decisions and in inner monologue, and I'm like, wait a minute, so wait, who's who's talking? Is it the Ruby? Who is this? Um, and it's really off-putting. It's really unsettling. We don't really have much in the way of... Okay, I guess like the first issue also has that sort of omniscient narrative voice. Mm-hmm. But we mm-hmm. haven't really seen it since then, have we? This is the first time it's cropped back up. Yeah, you're right, because yeah. it's usually like Dream talking about it. I like to read this issue in David Attenborough's voice. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, yeah. Right? Neil Gaiman hey, playing David it... Attenborough. <laughs> I... I kind of love that. And that's that's now all I'm going to be able to hear whenever I <laughs> do subsequent rereads. But I do, I do find it kind of compelling that there is this narrator anytime the concept of power is introduced because it's kind of reminding you that everyone that's present really doesn't have nearly as much control as they think they do. You know, they, they sort of exude in their own sort of ecosystem a modicum of control, but it doesn't really exceed beyond what they imagine it does. Um, and just generally for the world building that dream inhabits with regard to him, not being a God, but being godlike, having these powers and having this control over his own domain and such, uh, this, I mean, we've seen Neil Gaiman in so many of his works have discussions about godlike power and what makes one godlike as opposed to a god and what kind of responsibilities come with that kind of power. So you also see Dr. D sort of functioning as this sort of false prophet with regard to the tools he's using and how it's representative of the dreaming and how he uh, sort of um, upsets the balance of that rule that dream has uh, so that's where you would get into, say, my territory with regard to biblical scholarship, because you have a lot of both Hebrew scripture and in the Gospels references to false prophets being compared to wolves in sheep's clothing, to being packs of ravenous wolves tearing apart the helpless, the victims, those who are um, completely un- un- completely unable to defend themselves. So. I do find that, again, to be an interesting sort of comparison or parallel, not because Neil Gaiman is attempting to create some sort of sermon illustration, I don't think he would ever do that, (laughs) but specifically because 
the idea of honesty, the idea of responsible, um, responsible wielding of power and leadership is kind of a, a moral exemplar in a lot of the heroes of Neil Gaiman's work. Mm -hmm. So um, being able to pull from those threads, I think, is a natural sort of illusion for Definitely. Him. And the sheep imagery in the Bible is also very present. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, yeah, because they're generally innocent innocent as doves. Yeah. Followers are wanting to be like sheep, right. not so much that they're mindless, but because they're obedient. Exactly. Because they go where they're meant to go. Exactly. Um, and even the one that does stray away is valued mm -hmm. um, because again livestock was valued sure and you don't want to be like a goat because goats do their own thing, right right thing but there's community and numbers mm -hmm. that all all of that there's lots of illustrations of, of sheep being good but in this case they're bad because they're helpless so right. again bringing out that power imagery mm -hmm. and that discussion of what does power look like what does absolute power look yeah. like how does one wield it and is it a good thing to be innocent and vulnerable, or in this case, is it more important to be shrewd and powerful? Well, I think that the idea of the sheep in a biblical sense, especially the New Testament, is that the Lord is your shepherd. You can be a sheep as long as you have the Lord as your shepherd, but if you don't have Jesus on your side and it's just John D. in the diner messing with you, then it's not a great time to be a sheep. No, well, and not even just Christ. Again, in the Old Testament, it's referenced Yahweh yeah. is, is meant to be this, this eternal sort of shepherd. And so that's why when there were false prophets, specifically if you pull out Ezekiel, which is like one of the most metal books of the Bible, if you're Ooh. ever really wanting a good time, read the prophet Ezekiel. <laughs> cool. It is so very sad and hardcore, but very, very good. Um, you know, he's describing the the kingdom of Babylon, which were their ultimate en enemies enslaved. And we think when we think of the enslavement of the Jews, we think Egypt, uh, Babylon is a big part of that as well. And so you have Ezekiel five years after their enslavement, he's living in a tent city, receives this vision, and it has to do with, um, you know, the Lord Yahweh expressing to him, Hey, Israel has strayed. They've taken on false gods They've also uh, started listening to false prophets. There are false prophets among you. Um, and uh, what, what's the line? Let me pull it up real quick. Here it is. Ezekiel 22, verses 26 through 28. Its priests have done violence to my teaching and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common, the common being the profane. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have disregarded my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Its officials within it are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. Its prophets have smeared whitewash on their behalf, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God when the Lord God has not spoken. So we see that a lot from D uh, in that he is, again, he's, he's expressing, and we see that in that panel too, that series of panels where they have like God written in blood across his yeah. chest. And he's even talking about how... You know, he, he takes the sacrifice even though he doesn't want it. You know, he doesn't even really know what would satiate him. Um, yeah, definitely. So he's he's definitely playing at this godlike power 
and going back to my discussion about hermetic philosophy, he's he's trying to take over a domain that's not his. He doesn't even really know the extent of that dom- domain in the first place. So he's kind of play acting here mm-hmm. um, and doing so on a small scale just to see what satisfies him, which so far we've seen is really not much at all. No. Yeah. He doesn't even know what he's hungry for. Yeah. <laughs> he's just kind of pushing the boundaries, much like Neil Gaiman pushed the boundaries when he wrote this issue, as Sean brought up yeah, earlier. It's 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 because I was I think that's a great explanation of the the the, the kind of omnipresent sheep element. I had kind of for a little while sort of you know puzzled at it and then just put it aside. But I was happy to see it on your list of topics, especially because like my first topic, just my little like cutesy name for it, I called it slicing up eyeballs, which was. I based on the line from the Pixies song. Uh, I want yes. you to know. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which <laughs> was about the experimental film Unchien Andalou, uh, the Buñuel yep. and Dali film, which opens with a sheep's eyeball being sliced oh, open right. with a razor blade. <laughs> oh, I yeah. I had completely forgotten all about that. Yeah, that's, that's a so good that's, one. Okay. That's totally that out there, <laughs> like very left field. Well, but I, I like the little synchronicities, you know? Yes. Well, and there's this really odd part that I noticed as well. If you turn to, again, I'm sorry I don't have page numbers. It's when they're basically just having that giant orgy behind the counters. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the hand, the limbs sticking up. Yeah, exactly. So you see the you see the writing behind the bottom three panels? So I... I typed out everything that I could discern from that. And then I oh, yeah. I could not find reference to this writing anywhere apart from two articles, both written in German. Hmm. So shout out to Germany and all German comic book writers for actually noticing the little things <laughs> because they were the only two references I could find on anybody noting the writing behind here. But I'll just read it for you. Uh, what What is visible and what I could kind of piece together is this. And this is page 15. Sheep come walking, knocking, talking, or toking, depending on how you read the writing. In my clocking electric dreams of TV screens, fiends of chiefs and cheese and late night commercials that don't make sense, walking in electric dreams and robot dreams of comic book cannibal sheep slash wolves, coats and wandering floors with water and silks. And... That's where it kind of cuts off. Wow. I can't find the rest. That's incredible. So it, and it's got some yeah, Philip so K. Dick in there. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Somebody exactly. Been, exactly. Some Philip K. Dick. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. So I don't know if this is maybe something Neil Gaiman like, wrote and just threw on the background. Like, yeah, I was just, I was. Maybe he's just getting kind of like madly meta here. I can see the word comic mm-hmm. books in here too. Like, yep. he's, just, he's just really connecting, uh, becoming this character in order to write this issue. Yeah, I just really love that that we're so saturated with this imagery that it's even in writing mm-hmm. behind all the panels. So you can't escape it. So even then when you're not looking for it, like by the time I was like, nope, I've counted all the sheep. They're all in here. Which, oh, counting sheep. That's mm-hmm. another great. Oh, yeah, you, fall, <laughs> you, know? you try to fall asleep by counting sheep. Right. A... So like I've literally counted all of the sheep. Then I laugh about the fact that I've counted sheep. I'm not <laughs> looking for them anymore. I'm just reading the issue. And then I get to that page. And I'm like, are you kidding me? There's a sheep I missed? Not a bad topic, Ashley. <laughs> Sean, <laughs> what do you got for us next? 
All right, we're gonna get real nerdy here, so um, get ready, folks. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about some of the unique formal elements of this issue, like the mechanics of telling a story on a page. So to start, uh, give you a little bit of background. So the fundamental mechanic of comics is the representation of time as space, right? The page is divided into sections. Sections are called panels. Um, what the cartoonist Chris Ware has described as boxes of time. So this is because when you're telling a story in comics, an event within the narrative itself is broken up into a series of discrete moments. And each moment is represented as a still image within a panel. Um, and then by carefully choosing which moments to draw out and what information to present, the authors create the illusion of the passage of time. Um, so that's kind of very basic. Uh, the reader, right? The reader actively participates in this illusion in a couple ways. The first way is by agreeing to believe that any given panel the reader is looking at is the present. So for American or European readers, you know, this panel is the present, everything above and to the left of it is the past, which no longer exists. Everything below and to the right of it is the future, which hasn't happened yet. So even though it's there in ink on the very same page you're looking at, and your eye probably can't help but take in the whole page at once, we agree to pretend that this little box of time is the only thing happening right now. Okay, so that's one way. The other main way we participate in the illusion is by taking two separate images, two panels, and transforming them into one single idea. So this happens through what the cartoonist and comics theorist Scott McCloud calls closure, where the reader's imagination actively fills in the unseen space between panels, you know, the gutter it's called, and so participates in the meaning-making process in a way that no other art form can really claim like, I guess you do that with, like, film in a way, because it's just still images, like, projected. But it's happening so fast, you don't think of it that way, right? It's 24 frames per second or something like that. So McLeod, in his wonderful book, Understanding Comics, so if you're curious about, you know, how to read comics, what to get out of comics, definitely recommend that. He writes, Comics panels fracture both time and space, offering a jagged staccato rhythm of unconnected moments. But closure allows us to connect these moments and mentally construct a continuous, unified reality. So this remarkable process happens totally off the page and in the mind of the reader, which is why McLeod cleverly calls comics the invisible art, right? Because it's all happening in your mind, the actual important stuff. So that's the absolute basics. But of course, it is way more complicated than that. In fact, in comic scholarship, the space between panels, that gutter, has produced an overabundance of interpretations and theories throughout the last couple decades. It's the elision, it's the aporia, the site of trauma, the liminal space, the capital U unconscious, the capital R real, the face of God. Okay, not the last one. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hold up. Yeah. But my point is a lot, maybe too much, has been read into this little space. I don't want to go that far. But I do want to look at some of the really cool ways uh, Gaiman, Dringenberg, and Jones use the breakdown of the page in the panels to highlight that time as space element 
and how it influences the reader's encounter with the book. And we know this is stuff that Neil thinks about. Um, in Highbender's Sandman Companion, Gaiman says, I often think of comics as songs. You're looking at the beat, and one of the things that you never get in prose, or almost never, for it's much harder to do in prose, is the rhythm of a sequence of panels. And like, you know, think about it, right? So you've got one, two, three, four. And that's different than one, two, three, four, which is different than one, two, three, four, and much different than one, two, three, four, right? The overall clock time is the same, but the pace changes our experience of the duration. So the first kind of level of impact here is the unique concept of a story that takes place in 24 hours and is told in 24 pages. So as we talked about earlier, you know, he originally tried to start off doing it like one hour per page, realized he couldn't really do that. But still, largely, when you turn a page in this issue, you're on a new hour, and then you've got the inclusion of this little timer along with numerous images of clocks, watches, etc. Um, within the book that all serve to make us more conscious of time in this issue than we would be with most other comics. Um, still, this is a fairly simple conceit, and it's far more interesting to me what's being done, you know, the, with the pacing and the temporality within and across panels themselves. For example, see how the number of panels per page and their emphasis can affect the way we experience the story. In hour one, the first few pages, I would say like we're moving at a relaxed pace, five or six panels per page, clear actions connecting each panel, driving the easy flow of the reader's experience. That cuts a tuna sandwich, carries it across the diner, places it in front of Judy, fills her coffee, walks back to the counter. The flow is easy and naturalistic. But as we get to the end of hour one, we see an entirely different type of panel transition. Mm. Uh, to use McLeod's terms, it's no longer like one action connecting another action, but one aspect connecting another aspect. We get five panels of John D, not moving at all, and a three-panel row with an increasing emphasis on the ruby. Now, we know mm. roughly how long it takes to cut a tuna sandwich and put it on a table, but how long do we stare at Dream's ruby? How slow is the zoom, you know, to borrow a film term? It's an entirely different sort of temporality we experience there. Hmm, you're right. So then as we move through hours two through six, and the tension increases, we move away from that five to six panel grid and towards the nine panel grid. The rhythm of the story changes, there are more beats, and thus a kind of growing intensity. The nine-panel grid is one I always associate with, like, paranoia and menace, since it was used so effectively in Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen just a few years before. Mm. So if you've ever read Watchmen, it's, like, the whole book is nine panels per page. Yeah, oh, I, I never connected it with that feeling, though. That makes total sense. We also see some panel transitions that are fairly rare in Western comics at the time, where panels are added to create additional intervals of time. So I'm thinking of where D first uses the ruby. I think it's hour two. Uh, and Mark goes from like rushing to leave to ordering more coffee and thinking, hmm, great coffee. 
Yeah, right? I knew everything was moment. wrong in that moment. <laughs> and it like it comes right after the slow zoom, you know, on the Ruby too. That's when the issue really starts. The chaos yeah. really starts. Yeah, and you could like you could do that. You could show that happening in two, uh, like two or maybe in one panel. But here it's done over three with one completely silent panel in which nothing's happening. But its presence on the page forces us to slow down our reading, to guess at what Mark's thinking, to stew in the vague sense of unease that's growing. We see this again a couple pages later in which the nine panel grid allows us to experience the clear repetition of figures and poses with Gary and Kate. Mm -hmm. We know two hours pass based on the caption, but the repeated images contradictingly give a sense of no time passing at all. Yeah. It's honestly one of like the most disturbing page layouts in the whole book, really. This is like where they, you know, they keep stopping and thinking like, wait, didn't we, did we just, did... and then they go back to like smiling like blithely, right? Yeah. So, okay, two more quick examples I want to call out. One is in hour 12, where Kate is telling her deeply disturbing, like, necrophilia story. Uh-huh. <laughs> in the four panels in the upper right corner of the page, the pace is determined entirely by Kate's narrative and not at all by the images in the panels. In fact, there's only one image, and that is then divided by the panel borders. And for the readers at home, that's page 14 in the version that I'm using. Yeah, so there's nothing like, there's nothing happening within that image that would force our eyes to move from one panel to another. Like, it's just driven by um, her story. So we're seeing an entirely different use of the page breakdown here. One where moments and beats and everything I talked about earlier is, in a sense, suspended. And when something like that happens, as an active reader, you have to say, like, well, why? How does this presentation change the effect of the work? And I would say it calls attention to the pain and shame of this forced confession. So we, the reader here, are like a kind of voyeuristic intruder, peeking into someone's most private moments. Kate doesn't meet our gaze, and so our eyes wander freely over her features. Even the grid itself makes it seem as though we're peeping through a window and catching her unaware. But the grid also divides her, much as she's forced to recount this shameful secret against her will. She's both telling the tale and listening to herself tell it. Performer and audience, torn apart for Dee's amusement. It's a really remarkable moment, and Dringenberg draws the hell out of it. The last example I'll include is the expert use of the splash page. A single image that fills the page with no panel divisions at all. So here it takes place in hour 22. It's one of the last couple pages of the book. And it's where Dee is like standing alone among the mutilated bodies in the diner. And that's page 22. That fits. Fits the hour thing. Mm -hmm. um, since panels alongside dialogue and captions are what determines the pace of the story, the absence of those elements has the opposite effect of indicating timelessness. On the splash page, we are frozen in the moment, unmoving, a dead witness to a completed crime. The tension evaporates, and we can only gaze frozen upon the wreckage. Wow. So that's my little little close reading of this issue for you. Fantastic. I mean, it's, it's true. These panels, just the way that they shift 
and the spacing in between and it seems like each character has a moment and each character's moment appears differently not just in coloring and the drawing techniques but also the the panels very brilliantly done thanks for pointing all that out sean yeah yeah Ashley, do you have another deep dive? I do, yeah. Sean, thanks for all that depth because we're about to get real shallow. <laughs> Let me... yeah, let's lighten it up a bit, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so for my for my second deep dive topic, I wanted to uh, make a quick highlight of Secret Hearts. It's the soap opera that Dee is watching on the TV right after he asks Bet to turn it on for him, or rather... <laughs> To make it work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make the TV Which work. It's phrasing that yeah, it makes me laugh every time. Um I wanted to highlight this because I wanted to see if there was a specific soap opera he was pulling from, only to find out, and I didn't know this ahead of time, that Secret Hearts was a DC romance comic oh. from the that ran from the from nineteen forty nine to nineteen seventy one. Um and so Typical issues featured three romance stories, an advice article, some ads for Wonder Woman, no sexism there, and then some <laughs> illustrated poetry, such as uh, False Love by Sir Walter Scott. So they were really pulling, like, they, they weren't sure what they were doing at first, and then they kind of focused in on the sort of teen beat aspect, where there would be three stories or maybe one main story over a series of issues and then some love advice hmm. towards the end like where's a great place to meet boys or stuck between two bows here's how to choose that kind of thing <laughs> um and and so you had these these teenage issues that just focused on on romance so i i love their feature in the comic because the the sort of plot points that we're getting uh in each clip of the show really reflect well the types of plot points that were in the comic themselves. I also like the fact that it's happening as Judy is having her own romantic uh, drama, yes. which is also very similar to the dramas found in this comic. It's just that she's a lesbian and they wouldn't have featured any sort of queer love in Secret Hearts, you know, being when it was happening but there are some like really hilarious just to lighten the mood a little bit some really hilarious cover stories that were shared and i just want to read the plots of these to you real quick uh so from issue 11 um whether he was gay angry tender suspicious romantic she loved paul he brought her heartache and happiness by showing her the five faces of love and that's the title of the story, Ooh. The Five Faces of Love. And that's the synopsis. Wow. I feel like I only know three, so I might need to check this <laughs> out. I know. Uh, another one is <laughs> Linda falls in love's, love with Rick, an irresponsible hippie. When he is arrested, or when she is arrested at the scene of one of Rick's crimes, she refuses to give him up to the police in Love is Not a Happy Thing. Oh. Plus, Kelly starts to sing with her boyfriend Greg's band, but she thinks that Greg is jealous of her success in Love Song in Blue. <laughs> so a lot of these sort of romantic plot points show up in Judy's own storyline as we like learn about her as a mm. character. And I kind of love the fact that Neil Gaiman is, has lifted this source material and then put a fresh face on it and given it to a character that really, I mean, has some pretty tragic storylines, but 
allows her to have the sort of romance novel that were featured in these very dated comics. Um, and I, I just really appreciate the fact that he's taken, again, a DC property and get, breathe new life into it. So if you go back and read, you can find them on eBay everywhere. <laughs> there are a lot of comic book shops selling, you know, original issues. You can find them. The The illustrations oh are hilarious as well. Goodness. Just, I didn't there's even, one. I'm looking at some of the stuff right now. And like the, every single cover has a woman in distress. And yes. often in a man's I spent arms. Like, <laughs> yeah, so I, I spent like two hours just reading out covers to my husband. <laughs> like there's one in this issue, Distant Love, and there's this there's this man sort of caressing a ginger debutante on the <laughs> on the <laughs> on the um the balcony of some big cruise ship. Mm. And then his girlfriend is in a rowboat behind this cruise ship, <laughs> trying to catch up with them saying, saying, Oh, Danny, I should, I should hate you for what you're doing to me, but I can't help loving oh you. And she's just gosh. frantically rowing, trying to catch up. There's another one where there's a woman sobbing in her bed, clearly pretending to be asleep. And her boyfriend and some other woman standing in the door of her bedroom. And he's saying, it's about time she found out. And they're like making out in her door Ooh, while she's brutal. asleep. The betrayal. Right. And, and you know, I, I only know. laugh. High I drama. only laugh because it's horrible. And because I do believe that we're progressing <laughs> beyond this kind of stuff at this point. Okay. What I will say in defense of romance comics is that, yeah. so we know Neil Gaiman, when he does sort of odes to comics, they're really often geared towards the work of Jack Kirby. Um, and we've talked mm-hmm. about his work some so far. He basically invented romance comics. Really? Yeah. I, I, from, what I, from the quick look I did, I don't know that he worked on like Secret Hearts at all, but he basically invented the genre of romance comics. And they pretty much saved the comic book industry. Because after World War II, by like the late 40s, all those superhero books stopped selling. Like nobody cared about superhero books. And it was those oh, romance yeah. books and those like teen love books that um, yeah. kind of kept the industry afloat. Interesting. I'd be I'd be curious to find out if he had a hand in, in Secret Hearts then because he wasn't referenced when I was looking at contributors, but maybe he influenced their, their becoming a staple for DC. Could be. I mean, he, it, like if this sounds like more like straight romance and his his thing was like more particularly like teen you know like the teen romance book so a little bit different but you know could be the other really funny feature about these is so all the heroines look very as pat said sad distressed (laughs) trying to choose the right thing to do all of the the women that are depicted as being like the other women or the like the friend the portrayal of the friend trying to wedge their way into a relationship have these like really severely penciled eyebrows that look so like you can't interpret them as anything other than evil (laughs) so there's one there's one cover where a woman is looking into her own bedroom mirror and in lipstick it says so you think he's yours eh and then in the back there's this just really awful evil looking woman shutting a door behind her as she's like following her boyfriend out so it kind of gives me like R.L. Stein vibes yeah. as well sometimes. <laughs> Shout out R.L. Stein. Truly. So yeah, I'd be really curious to get my hands on a few of these issues because the just the the ad copy 
for each one was so hilarious and so dramatic and so specific to the time. And to its credit, like in in the sixties there were a lot of issues that focused on like interracial coupling nice. and talking about trying to stay together despite how the world views them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really incredible insight into how people were trying to step forward in the narratives being told. Um, but yeah, a lot of the other gender politicking was just not quite there yet. You know, we're, we're still working on it to this day, I think. You're telling me. <laughs> but I think Gaiman did a pretty good job in this issue of not necessarily, I mean, you know, as you said, everybody gets it. Everybody's a goner. Nobody's any better than each other in this, in this issue. I think, um, he doesn't generally seem to have the misogyny of his predecessors baked into his writing, which is very, a very wonderful thing to read, even in such a gory issue of a comic book. And with that, let's head into our favorites. But first, uh, the waiter's coming over. I need to order. Or, wait, Ashley, didn't I already order my food? I just got my coffee, so I don't know what you're talking about. Is something about. wrong? I love this place. You know, I, I love this place. This is great. I'm going to order my food. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. <laughs> now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yes, sounds like someone fell. Gotcha! This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! <laughs> Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. All right, on to the favorites. Ashley, what panel did you choose this week? Ooh, this one was hard. Uh, there were so many great panels, but the one that... I kept, I kept, I chose the one that kept making me giggle because I did need some levity throughout this one. Yeah. It's very specifically, again, forgive me on the lack of page numbers, it's when Mark is thinking he's going to be late to his job interview and we see yes. D use the ruby for the first time. It's the it's the red panel of him making the face and Mark's hand is kind of cutting through the panel yes. itself. It, this... This drawing, this rendering of D makes me laugh every time because it looks like the setup to a meme. Just the facial expression <laughs> he has. Like he's just like, you know, as he's yeah. like coursing with this ruby power. And, yeah, so and he's just like kind of leaned to... back and his teeth are out. <laughs> and he's right. about to do something. But again, he's not exactly the godlike figure that he sees himself as. So it kind of just looks like a dork. He really does. He really does. So it that's the panel I chose. I thought it was really funny. I like the fact that there's a there's this really extravagant use of color. I also kind of like that Mark's hand is punching through that panel to sort mm. of to me, and again I might be reading into it, demonstrate that 
reality is starting to punch through D's vision for what he wants the world to be. So, mm. you know, people are coming to, they're starting to break his uh, desires for this world. And then he reigns it back in again. Uh, yeah. So just generally, yeah. I just like how this is composed and how, you know, as Sean and mentioned, how time is being expressed here. Um, but really specifically, just because it makes me laugh every time I look at it. <laughs> it's a fantastic little pink panel. That's on page six on my on my issue. Sean, what do you have for today's panel? Well, you know, I knew it was going to be a panel with someone's tongue out. But I had trouble <laughs> picking which one. See, I thought I was going to go for mm-hmm. the panel in... It's in hour 11 where D is being carried around on people's shoulders and he's got mm-hmm. God written on his chest. Yeah. And uh, in the middle of the page on the far right is where he politely, but not too interestingly, like li- uh, sticks his tongue out to lick blood from the severed finger. I believe uh, he doesn't really want to do it. He's like, I don't really want to yeah. be doing this, but this is what a god does. I be I believe the internet has given us the official term of blep. Oh yeah, that is kind of a blep, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so that's just like so disturbing and creepy. That was really up there for me, mm. but it's not the one I picked. It's not the one you picked. Um, oh, oh, okay. The, mm-hmm, of course. No, the one I picked Sean was sneak even action. <laughs> <laughs> classic. Sean. The one I picked. Oh yeah, <laughs> was even more horrifying to me, and it was on the previous uh two pages before and it's the one where kate is standing in the background and d is in the foreground and he's yeah he's wandering around kind of experiencing these dreams of happiness that people have and their dreams of happiness are all really gross um and kate involves you know, you see on the previous page, she's holding Gary's severed head on a plate, cradling it lovingly, right? Uh, with sort of like a stylized kind of Marilyn Monroe background, you know, happy that he's no longer going to have his little indiscretions. He's all hers, right? And then so, we move to this panel that I'm talking about. What's that? So you're, okay, so you're moving back to the panel. I think that was another Sean Sneak right there. Yeah, I think it is. I, I guess it sort of was, but it was just setting up my panel. But I, I, that's, not, that's not in the running. It was just, uh, but I, I guess it is. Okay, so moving on to my actual panel. Presuming that she is still cradling Gary's severed head, she seems to be like tongue-kissing the imaginary severed head in that panel that we're looking at. And the fact that you can't actually see her doing it, but you see her like making the motions is so deeply disturbing. I have to give it my panel pick of this issue. Nice. Yeah, that's a really is good that, one. And are we supposed to interpret the shadow behind her as Gary in his own fantasy simultaneously while Kate is in I, her fantasy? I think that's a really good explanation. I did not know, honestly. and I, But I think, I feel like that's right because it is sort of in the same position that he is in the convertible on the previous page mm-hmm. yeah i know it's my i know it's my turn uh so i was gonna say the one where john d is licking the finger but you already took that one from me and then my oh, backup see, this is the unfair part of the sean sneak and then my backup was gonna be the um kate holding the severed head with madonna behind her 
So I got I got Sean sneaked twice. Oh my gosh. Welcome to being a co-host, Pat. You know? And, and, and so like it'd be really easy for me to love the nails in the hand. I like the gory stuff. And I just love that this that they were able to do this. But I think that my third backup was the pack leader. But I got one more first. <laughs> so this is page 20. The pack leader's teeth are strong and sharp. He is a good leader. The challenge has been met. And Gary. Gary is, it looks like he's ripping this, like the flesh of somebody's neck out with his teeth. Yeah, poor Mark. Yeah, Mark. You know, and some of the other panels where there's blood, he's covered in red. But this one... On page 20, everything has gone completely psychedelic in the color choices. And he is neon yellow with some green in the background as just this horrifying orange. And you can almost see, if you look up in the right-hand corner, the face of a wolf. Yeah. Just kind of back there. Not even really ferocious looking, almost sad while he does this. It's beautiful. And it says, <laughs> because as we all know, that's the sound of the beast. I love it. It is beautiful. a very cool effect. It's beautiful. And the splatter on his suit. Oh, man. It's beautiful. I love the gore. What can I say? My closest connection to Sandman is, all, is, is the horror comics. I would steal... I would borrow my mom's Tales from the Crypt, <laughs> etc. And this was before I was probably old enough to be allowed to do that. Is that but what made it stealing? Is that, and that's what made it stealing. Because she was, you know, as Ben said before, my mom was always, you can borrow comics, just put them back in the sleeve when you're done. So we'll bounce back over to Sean now. Who is your favorite non-Morpheus character? Not that we really got much Morpheus in this issue no this is a tough one because like nobody comes out looking too great and <laughs> i feel like i I'm, I'm afraid i'm gonna you know take at least one of yours here um but you're allowed you're allowed two sneaks only <laughs> no no i'm just taking one this time I, for a favorite character i only do one <laughs> but I, I think i gotta go uh judy on this one um cool because i i feel like i feel like Dringenberg enjoyed drawing her more than mm. the other characters um gave a lot of emotions to those images like i really think i mean it's it's fairly you know simple line work he's doing but i think his the expressions he draws uh on on, on judy in particular are extremely communicative i'm thinking especially of the panel with uh her talking to Donna's mother on the phone and the, how her hand is like in her hair. You feel like she's just like sort of like clenching her head and these like yeah. tears of frustration are falling down her face because she's like, you know, she's like, you don't have to approve of me, Mrs. Cavanaugh, but I just want to. It's like, you can really feel how angry and painful it is where she's just trying to find her girlfriend who she had a fight with and now she's got to like defend her 
existence yeah. to this like prejudiced old woman like oh you, that, that just like rage and frustration comes across so well mm-hmm. uh, so i gotta give it to judy for mine certainly what about you ashley you have so many to choose from and yeah. i kept ping-ponging all over the place but where i i ended up was again to give myself a little bit of levity i'm gonna have to go with the amazing herschel Nice. <laughs> yeah, that was so weird. <laughs> like, I I wasn't sure if he uh he and Betty, his wife, ever came up in other comics. I never quite found him featured anywhere else. But I just I find the little uh panel where he's he's explaining that it must be the rays and he's got a little finger pointed <laughs> and he's so serious. <laughs> you know, we're thinking it's probably rays. <laughs> yeah. It's just the with the chaos of everything else going on, how plain faced he is and re- relaxed and matter of fact he is about everything just makes me laugh every time. I just love that he's featured and that we get these other uh, superheroes that maybe we wouldn't imagine being particularly heroic. But I feel like it it just fits considering he's the local super t- superhero team. He and his wife. It's a very small time. Yeah, just like your friendly your friendly block, not even the whole neighborhood, just right. the block. <laughs> I'm going to go with Bet because I can totally relate. Um, I observe people, I write about other people's stories, I retell the endings and the beginnings of people's stories. <laughs> and I have no problem uh, morally doing that. I, I don't feel that it's wrong to steal other people's life stories and moments and make them into artwork and then share turn around and share them with the world. Although I can, you know, I can see where the argument could be made that they're not my stories to tell and especially to, to retell and to change. But that's all just a setup for what John D ends up doing to all these people. So she's kind of like the, which I didn't even realize until we started talking about this issue with the two of you, um, that she's basically a metaphor for what he's about to do. And then in general, Neil Gaiman, like he's written himself into this issue as her and as John D as the storyteller. And I'm not Sean sneaking in uh, John D here, although he was clearly just fantastic in this (laughs) issue. I've also worked a lot of service industry jobs and something that I do to keep my creativity occupied and my mind occupied while I'm working at a bar or a restaurant has been to observe the people that I'm waiting on and write about them. So I I immediately clicked with her. I think that the best part of her character for me personally is that she truly thinks that one day she will write the novel Whereas I, I write albums and I publish them. Um, and it's, I know so many people in the service industry who will never write that record or finish that song or even, even save the pieces of paper. They'll just drink their shift drinks at the end of the shift, go home, wake up and come back to work. And it's really a really sad thing because... They are brilliant, often brilliant minds that could contribute amazing stories if they didn't have to work their entire life away, especially at such an energy-draining 
job. Amen. You should do a TED Talk. <laughs> I'll just keep writing rap albums. <laughs> see if they see if they offer me a platform one day. <laughs> she really is, though, emblematic of that. I, I've heard that advice over and over and over again. Like, no, you don't want to or aspire to be a writer. You are a writer. Put that in your Twitter bio. Even if you only write one sentence right. in a Word document, you are a writer. You are and she, a like, writer. <laughs> I feel like she, she read that and she was like, you're right. And uh, then yeah. just now she's like, yeah, I'm a waitress. Wink. <laughs> it's so funny. She's like, she, we're, we're in on her little secret that she's yeah. not actually just a waiter. And it... It's like the only part that's devastating. At first, I was like, oh, this is cute. She likes writing little stories for herself. But it's devastating because she truly she truly thinks that one day she will publish a novel, which is not the case. So it goes from being like cute and endearing to devastating, and then everybody mm-hmm. dies. Spoiler. <laughs> what a great talk. Sean filled us in about the changes in this issue from what we've read so far with Neil Gaiman breaking all the rules and pushing his reader's limits as well. Maybe losing a few readers along the way definitely would have gained my undying allegiance to this comic if this was being published while I was reading, because just, oh my goodness, the gore. Ashley pointed out the omnipresent imagery of sheep, which, you know, I didn't even notice during my read-through. She connected the sheep-like behavior of the victims of John D and him being the false prophet to imagery of sheep that we've seen in classic literature and religion throughout the ages. Next, Sean broke down the fundamental mechanics of comic books for us once again, and the reader's participation in the process, especially in the gutter, in order to discuss how Gaiman and his team masterfully used the panel positioning to pace this chaotic, disturbing story that touches on many different characters and their micro-stories. Ashley. Thank you so much for putting us on to the dramatic, dated, uh, kind of misogynist romance comics, Secret Hearts. Maybe we'll get a Netflix adaptation of that one day soon. Who knows? I'm just putting it out there because <laughs> it's definitely what we need, right? I think I unironically un- agree there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they could do it. They could do it. I believe. Um, your favorite panels are always illuminating, even though I've seen the panels, hearing you focus in on them makes me understand what's going on on the page a little bit more. And even if Sean totally snuck my first two choices into his, I'm so sorry. I'm into it. I'm still about it. There's a lot of characters to choose from this issue. We all did our best to choose one. I'm sure that this has re- replay value and that next time We'll all focus on somebody else, like perhaps the dino puppet, which was going to be my fallback <laughs> if somebody chose Bet. And that's a Sean Sneak from producer Pat filling in for co-host Ben. Nice. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at 
D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Head Trip everywhere at LT Head Trip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Odd Conduit Media.